My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Oriane Society and the host of the Snake Talk Podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. I am here today with Rhett Stanberry. I met him really, I guess, a number of years ago now in the woods. We bumped into each other, and I've been following him and and uh, his wife on social media now for, for many years, uh, following all of their adventures. And uh, they're uh, really involved in in snakes and herps uh, in general in a whole variety of ways. Uh, you know, they they have a lot of um, captive animals that they keep, and they they travel around the southeast doing a lot of field herping and and travel to some interesting uh, international destinations. And that's kind of what we're going to focus on today. Uh, we'll obviously talk to Rhett and and learn a little bit about him and, and what he does and, and some of the field herping he does uh, here in the States. But I want to spend the bulk of our time talking about traveling, talking about traveling to go field herping or snake hunting or, uh, you know, these different like kind of ecotourism type uh, type activities. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about some of Rhett's adventures, but I also want to talk about, you know, just kind of how he does it, you know, it the idea of, of traveling to another country to look for snakes might be a, a pretty daunting uh, task to a lot of people. So we're going to we're going to talk about a number of those different factors. And uh, hopefully this episode will help you on your next adventure uh, into to an international destination. So, Rhett, welcome to the uh, Snake Talk podcast. Hey, Chris, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you. Good to have you. So I always like to kind of start out and lay the groundwork and just kind of understand how my guests ended up getting into snakes. You know, is it is it a, cho- a story from your childhood or something that happened more recently? But what was it that first, you know, really gave you an interest in snakes and, you know, reptiles in general? So I don't actually have like, I have a first interest as far as venomous snakes go, but I don't actually have like, I held my first snake and it hooked me. Uh, I guess I could say that I was sort of born into it. Uh, Growing up, my dad was a wildlife photographer here in Florida. So he traveled me around with him basically ever since I could walk. And my dad's dad was actually the director of Florida Fish and Wildlife. uh, I believe it was the 70s. So it just goes way back. And even on my mom's side, people are working in conservation. Uh, I've asked my parents because it gets brought up at my job quite a bit. Uh, We think it may have actually had to do like reptiles in general had to do with the Ninja Turtles. Because when I first started to talk, they became a thing. And apparently I went through a phase where I could say, watch turtles. And they said I was turtly. (laughs) So this happened then... I mean, first of all, it's just your whole history, your ancestry, but it also, it sounds like it hit you when you were really young then. 
Yeah, I don't, I cannot remember a period of my time. I cannot remember. <clears throat> I can actually not remember a period of my life where I wasn't completely obsessed with animals. Uh, so even as a little kid growing up in Florida, I've been here my whole life, except for nine months. Um, and there's reptiles everywhere. Turtles, you know, you walk out your front door and there's a turtle crossing the street. Um, I don't have that first animal. I've asked my dad. He says when we would be out in the woods photographing wildlife, I was just instinctively rolling logs and, you know, flipping over signs and looking for bugs and little reptiles. Now, I have one memory where I got fascinated by venomous snakes. I was probably less than the age of 10. Uh, and my grandmother took me somewhere. I really don't remember where it was because since my grandfather worked in uh, FWC, they lived in Tallahassee. And we went to a park and they were feeding the snakes there. And they had a, to me at the time, looked like an absolutely massive Eastern Diamondback rattlesnake. But I'm sure it was probably like a four foot snake. Uh, they had a cottonmouth, a pygmy, and several other snakes, but I watched them feeding them. And they dropped a rat in with the snake. And I was like, whoa. And the diamondback turned around, looked at it, struck. And like before my brain could realize what had happened, the rat was done. And I was like, that is a cool animal. And <laughs> so that's my first memory of being like really into venomous snakes. Uh, but I had seen, you know, venomous snakes before. And my dad would keep me back and, hey, look over there. You know, uh, and I'd be wow, that's amazing. But I've always loved animals. I've always loved all wildlife. I always loved, you know, I was never taught to be afraid of venomous snakes or any wildlife in general. So, well, diamondbacks are certainly uh, a snake that'll hook you. Um, what an incredible yeah. animal! So, you know, in the intro, I kind of mentioned that there are all these components. You know, you, like I said, you keep snakes. You. Uh, you know, you do a lot of field herping, both here in the States and, and traveling. I know you do uh, some work with uh, agencies on, on uh, some of the invasive species. Um, and then, so what, but what is your, and well, I should also say, I didn't mention it in the intro, but you're a photographer as well. So what is your day job? I'm a tour guide. A tour so, guide. <laughs> <laughs> I am a uh, tour guide with <laughs> sorry I am a uh, tour guide in the Everglades. So I take people on a combination of half day and full day tours. It's typically geared toward general tourism, alligators, birds. Uh, so airboat rides, day hikes, and then often I'll get out animals. Usually I do a little daily program where people get a hold some snakes and alligators. And I use that as a daily opportunity to help rid people of their fears of reptiles. Pretty much every single day I'm handing a scared person a snake after or before a boat ride and hike through the Everglades. Excellent. So do you have your, do you do that through like a larger company or do you have your own company that's, that's leading yes. these tours? Yes. I work for a company down here in South ah. Florida. Excellent. Great. Well, um, maybe when we talk about how people can find you, we can, um, you know, put a link in the show notes to that in case they did want to, um, you know, experience some of these tours. So, um, tell us a little bit about, you know, some of these different components, I guess we'll start with, uh, why don't we start with the captive animals? So, uh, okay. you know, I, I know you mentioned that you have a separate snake room or a snake building. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, in just in a general sense, what type of animals do you keep? Are you into breeding? Uh, just just kind of that whole world of, of snake husbandry. 
Okay. Um, it's pretty straightforward as the snakes go. Uh, we've got, you know, some of your basic animals like dogs and cats. Um, we've got the monkeys, of course. Uh, we've got tortoises. Uh, we've got a few turtles. I'm in, right in the room with the turtles right now. A bunch of incubator full of redfoot tortoise eggs. Uh, and then we have an outbuilding uh, right next to our house where I keep my snakes, which is almost entirely venomous snakes. Uh, some native and some exotic. Uh, I've just been a hobby keeper for quite some time. And I also do a fair amount of breeding of exotic venomous snakes. And that's just kind of to sustain my hobby. And uh, I sell them to different, you know, private collectors and sometimes public facilities uh, around the United States. And we primarily breed small pit vipers. Well, sorry, <laughs> we primarily breed small vipers, uh, you know, pit vipers and true vipers, because I breed a lot of African species, which do not have heat pits. Yeah. And I, I want to say, I remember on social media, I don't know if it was on, you know, on your pages or on your wife's, but there was a picture, I think it was her, maybe it was both of you, but with just an absolutely giant uh, gaboon viper. I'm assuming, I'm assuming that was a captive animals that you guys keep. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That was our um, East African gaboon viper. Uh, the whole genus of Bittus is incredible. And I think my favorite is probably, you know, Gabonica. And it, it's a, it's a fairly large animal, but at the same time, she's also a very small person. She's, you know, four foot 10 and 110 pounds. So it's probably about a four and a half foot snake. But okay. a gaboon viper at four and a half feet is immensely thick. And I actually raised that snake up since it was a little caterpillar. But with her next to it, it just looks gargantuan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and that girth to the snake is what I was really oh, referencing. Yeah. I mean, it is a very healthy, or maybe it's unhealthy. No, but it's just a very <laughs> heavy snake. Really <laughs> impressive. So it is. It's a. It's you know compared to like our North American snakes, like the the rattlesnakes, they get heavy bodied, but nothing compared to the bitus. You know, so that snake, believe it or not, it eats about one large rat a month, so twelve meals a year, and it is just. Wow. And I've had it since it was maybe a six, seven inch worm. Uh, feeding it little, you know, fuzzies to now this four and a half foot, just immensely fat, uh, gaboon viper. It's an impressive animal for sure. Mm -hmm. It's, it's gorgeous. It's probably one of my favorite snakes in the collection that, and then I really, really love my waggler's vipers. Mm -hmm. Great. And so I also mentioned that you do a little bit of work with agencies, uh, we don't need to go into great depth there, but um, what is it that you do in a general sense working uh, there in Florida? Essentially like invasive species surveys uh, throughout the Everglades. So mostly with pythons. Got you. And so, you know, for, for listeners that are interested, uh, you can, uh, you know, we've done one episode on the, on the pythons in Florida and we're uh, in the future here, we're going to do a whole series that kind of takes in, uh, different stakeholders and different perspectives um, and kind of line those up back to back so people can get a feel for the whole issue. But I won't, we won't bog down in that because we could talk about that for hours and I really <laughs> want to get to other things uh, with you. So, so you live in Florida, you live generally uh, near the Everglades and you, you keep snakes, you get this long history uh, you know, all the way back to your childhood of just being enamored with animals in general. And, uh, but you're also, it's not just the husbandry side. You're also, 
you know, obviously very interested in animals in the wild. And, and before we get into kind of the field herping side, I did want to talk about the photography. Um, and, you know, I know you're, you're really into photography. Is that, how did that come about? Is that something that kind of came about? You know, it sounds like it came after the snakes because that the snakes happened very early. But is it kind of something that happened because of the snakes? They inspired you, wanted you to like kind of capture or is it tour guiding or what was it that that prompted you to really get into photography? So when we ran to each other in the woods, uh, my friend, uh, the older man. He was uh, he actually has a lot of photos in some of Louis Porras's books. And he got me into photography, which is kind of funny because my dad has been a photographer for the first 20 years of my life. And when I was a kid, I actually spent a lot of time in the Everglades canoeing around, photographing gators and birds and getting in the cold springs. Uh, he was a photographer for Save the Manatee Club for a long time, too. So I was in the water with the manatees a lot. And I actually really did not like taking pictures. It was the worst part of my day, you know, Hey, you know, hold the, hold the canoe steady while he's photographing an egret or a heron. So that was the most unenjoyable part of my outdoor experience as a childhood was the actual photograph taking part. But years went by where I was like, Oh, I'm not going to take pictures. Uh, one of my close friends in high school, my main snake hunting partner, uh, he started getting into photography, little point and shoot camera. He won a couple little small awards. I was like, oh, that's cool. And he's like, hey, we find some great stuff. You should document it. So I got like a little slide Fuji film thing. And, you know, we're finding a lot of great snakes. And I started hanging out with my one friend. We were doing venomous hours. We were spending a lot of time herping. And uh, he would spend a lot of time taking photos. And it kind of made me think of oh, my childhood and so many photo taking. I'm ready to just keep finding snakes. But then I'd see the photo and realized like, wait, oh, cool. Let's look back. Your photo is beautiful of a snake that we had once found. And you can go back and relive that moment by seeing that snake. And when you're young, your memory is vibrant. You know, all your finds are vibrant, but as finds continue, they start to fade. And there's a lot of things I wish I had photographed, but my one friend that I would do trips with uh, and the one that we had met together with, he has done a lot of just hobby photography throughout the years. And that's what got me started. Um, I got the same camera as him and he walked me through the whole thing. And then I just kind of started going off on my own. thing. Gotcha. And so is that what you primarily use, you know, your photos for? It's almost like a hobby. It's just for your personal memories, maybe to share with some close friends. I mean, you're, you're, are you selling photos and doing that type of thing? Or is it just a hobby? No. Um, I mean, I've sold a few photos. Uh, there was recently, there was some of my photos in traditional bow hunter magazine, a couple little odds and ends like that. Uh, they've been used in a couple books, but as far as like photography as a whole, it's just really to be able to go back and remember the finds that we've seen, the experiences that we've seen, you know, as we get older, we get more sentimental <laughs> and it's able to, uh, remember that, you know, in a sense for like, it's kind of like you go fishing. I grew up doing a lot of fishing and hunting as well. You know, you take a picture of that great fish you caught before you let it go. Take a picture of that beautiful snake you yeah. found before you let it go. You know, what a great way to capture a memory. And I certainly do that. I'm not um, into photography as much as you. Um, I am like you also very much into hunting and fishing and snakes. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, I always say I walk this interesting line because a lot of the snake people in my life, uh, you know, 
maybe don't understand or maybe even are kind of against the hunting side. And then the opposite's true as well. And it just, I don't, I don't understand. It all makes good sense to me. I mean, I love a, a big Eastern dimeback rattlesnake as much as I love a turkey. So um, anyways, it's, it's interesting to find other people that walk that line too. So. I totally get it. It's uh, it, we choose what we view it. Like I love turkeys, deer and all, you know, I used to do duck hunting uh, all those animals I still find is beautiful animals, but I would never, ever shoot and eat a, a rattlesnake. But mm-hmm. <laughs> on yeah. the other side, it's it's yeah, it's hard for other people to understand. And it's kind of a weird line, like you said, because your hunting friends are often terrified of snakes and do not like snakes. And you spend time saying, hey, look, next time you see one, don't run it over. Just yeah. leave it alone. Uh, and then, you know, your herping friends, they're like, ah, oh, hunting is gross. And granted these days I haven't hunted in quite some time. I still fish a little bit, uh, and Taylor's vegetarian. So <laughs> that lifestyle has been fading out, but it's, I, it's actually before I was able to target snakes in the manner that we can now, that was my best way to come in contact with snakes was fishing and hunting. Yeah. And they were a bycatch of the product, you know? A product yeah. of hunting. Yeah. And I, I, as you would imagine, I'm assuming I don't go out and hunt snakes and eat them either. But to me, there's there's a big difference in that. In today's world, take rattlesnakes as the example you used. That like, you know, we, we don't understand rattlesnakes like we understand white-tailed deer. We use like a exactly. science-based methodology to harvest white-tailed deer in a sustainable way. Whereas rattlesnakes, if we were to, to, you know, harvest them, you know, like you harvest deer, I really feel strongly for me to even remotely support it, which I'm not sure I would, but, but it would have to be, we would use the real science-based approach and build a sustainability into the model. And actually one of the episodes, you'd probably be interested in this too, if you haven't heard it, Rep, but we did an episode with the rattlesnake manager in the state of Pennsylvania. And we spent the whole episode talking about hunting snakes, not just going and looking for them, but actually hunting them and killing them. And they have a fascinating program up there that, uh, you know, has regulations associated with it. It has to be a male of a certain size and certain times. And using that approach, they've been very successful at recovering timber rattlesnakes in Pennsylvania. Now, certainly Pennsylvania is one of the biggest strongholds for timber rattlesnakes. So it's fascinating to me. But anyways, we're, we are on deep and another tangent and I want to get yeah. back on track here. So um, let, let's, let's transition a little bit. We mentioned the photography, but I do want to talk about the field herping and going out and, and seeing these animals in the wild. And, and we're going to move into talking about these international trips, but let's start there in your native Florida and maybe the Southeast more broadly. I'm assuming you do a fair amount of field herping in the Southeast. Is that accurate? Oh yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm leading tours every day. That's just an excuse to look for snakes <laughs> while I'm with people. <laughs> and then I, I do invasive species surveys at night. Sometimes I'm herping on the job, you know, five, seven days a week. Uh, so I post on social media, a very small amount of the reptiles that we run into. I try and post my favorite things uh, that I also think other people appreciate like king snakes. Who doesn't love a Brooks king snake? Uh, diamondbacks, who doesn't love a diamondback, mud snakes, swamp snakes, those types of things. Also, 
um, you know, my wife, Taylor, is very much into being out in the field together. Uh, so pretty much that's that's really all we do. Uh, I I'm one of those snake people who surprisingly all they do is snake stuff. So even when we're not surveying or working, we'll maybe go somewhere a little farther out. Like, hey, let's go to the coast together and let's go look for diamondback terrorists, you know. Out of the state, or hey, you want to go up to North right. Florida, go camping and look for copperheads for the weekend? Let's do it. But we're both kind of generalists in the same aspect that we really love snakes, but we also like birds and mammals and every other species. And I dabble in plants a little bit. I can't get her to get on the plant boat with me, but <laughs> so. <laughs> Gotcha. Well, well, that sounds great. So you mentioned, uh, you know, some of these adventures and I've seen some of this through social media. So you guys, uh, you do, you post a f- some of your pictures, but how about you also have a YouTube channel as well, don't you? That, uh, document some of these adventures. Is that right? Yeah. I've been trying to post cause I've been posting pictures a long time and friends and family have been like, Hey, we want to see like some videos of the wildlife. And it's cool seeing a picture of a snake, but then getting to see a video of a snake. And what I've been trying to post more of recently is I also, because I'm licensed for venomous snakes here in Florida. And it's, it's not like other States where Texas, you just go and buy a hunting license and you can, you know, just go look or keep some snakes here. It's uh, very regulated. You have to do a thousand hours per family. There's four families that also gives me the ability to transport venomous snakes legally. So I have on my own time, I try and do rattlesnake relocation because where we at, there's huge amounts of development going on and they're putting in these massive neighborhoods. And so we've been videoing ourselves going out, catching the rattlesnakes and then relocating them. Some of the rattlesnakes we're catching now are being taken to FGCU where they're being implanted with radio transmitters and and then being re-released out into the ecosystem where they're tracking them. Because a lot of these snakes are actually coming from preserves. So I have to, in order to release the snake back onto the preserve, that's, you can't just do that. You have to get permission from the property manager. So we've been working on a lot of that in the neighborhoods that surround the preserves in order to bring the snakes back in. And that's one of the things I've been trying to videotape more of. And then I share it on my local pages and people have been learning like, Hey, you don't have to harm this snake or kill this snake. There's somebody local that will come do it for free and take it back out into the ecosystem. And they like the added fact that a lot of the snakes get used for research. That makes people happy. Not every single snake, but depending on where they show up, they can. So that's one of the things I've been trying to focus on more. And then some of the traveling, I've been trying to put some videos where we just got home from Panama and I'm trying to compile all the Panama footage. And I even go back and look at videos of the animals be like, oh, that's cool. I can see the snake that I found years ago crawling around and in life and kind of relive it. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's let's talk about that uh, kind of international travel for you know, snake hunting or field herping, whatever you want to call it. So I think what I want to do is kind of talk in a general sense about some of it and then maybe document or or talk in more depth about maybe your most recent trip to Panama or or somewhere else that you've gone. But um, so before we get into that, though, like, what is it, you know, you you live, as you mentioned, in such a great place, uh, you know, just amazing wildlife, amazing snakes. So what is it that kind of first drove you to be like, hmm, I want to I want to go find some snakes in 
in another country, some other exotic destination. Thank you for listening to Snake Talk. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, you can help us by subscribing and leaving us a five-star rating. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions, be sure to leave us a review. Uh, it's going to sound kind of funny. My, uh, my grandparents are birders, and I, was, I used to go with them birding. And when I was young, they actually took me to Central America with them to look for birds a few times. And I think that's what really that did it right there. Going to these countries and seeing like, oh, look, this is a safe, beautiful place with beautiful, nice people. You know, you leave some of that fear of travel behind by going to these places. And I saw some wonderful birds. I saw some wonderful mammals. I didn't see a lot of reptiles on our birding travels together. And, you know, finding snakes here, reading books. You know, I've always been fascinated with snakes all over the world. A lot of us are always, that's the thing about field herping and people interested in reptiles. I can't say it's, it's almost limitless because every time you think, you know, every species, you discover another amazing species in another part of the world. And you're like, I want to see that in person. So a big one for me is I had actually gone to Costa Rica with my grandparents when I was younger. And I really wanted to see a golden eyelash viper. We didn't see one. I saw one at a zoo. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And I was like, I have to see one of these. So then uh, I wanted to do a trip outside of Florida. And my wife is kind of the one who sparked us to get traveling again. I was going to Arizona and I hadn't done um, an out-of-country trip in quite a few years. And so we wanted to do one just herping, no birding. And we just decided to start going. We did that starting about seven years ago. And, uh, it's, it's awesome. It's addicting. You get home from a trip and you just want to go on the next one, <laughs> but then your bank account's like, ha ha ha. That's funny. But, well, that's a, that's a great story that birding cause birding is, you know, um, I mean, obviously serious burgers travel all over the yeah. world. There's, there's infrastructure set up specifically for burgers There's travel companies for burgers. And so, um, that's interesting that, that that's kind of what made you realize like, Hey, I, I can, I can go do this, but for snakes and turtles and everything else. The other thing I'd pick up that, and I think we've probably mentioned this on the podcast multiple times, but you know, you said you didn't see a lot of herps while you were down in Costa Rica with your grandparents. And it's, I always kind of found it funny. Like people just picture themselves going to the rainforest and that they're like, snakes falling out of the trees and the grounds or either way. And certainly there, there are, um, you know, a, a great diversity of snakes and you can find them, but like, it, it's just not like that. They're not snakes crawling over the landscape. You have to be there, there at the right time and the right place and look pretty hard and, uh, can at times be pretty hard to target any one given thing. And it's a different world than I think what a lot of people imagine. Yes, it is completely different. And this is what I tell people on tours all the time. And this relates to it is we go out and a lot of people are afraid of snakes. And I always tell them, we probably won't see a snake today. You know, most tours, I don't even see a snake because it's in the daytime. But I say, they're definitely going to see us, <laughs> you know. 
So when you're out there, they're out there. And the rainforest is can be a really hard place to hurt. I have a lot of people reach out to me online like, hey, I went there. I looked around. I didn't see a single snake. Uh, searching for snakes in other countries is just like learning your snakes at home. You have to find what conditions cause movements when. You know, there's general rules of thumb that you'll go by when herping. You know, full moon, bad. Excessive rain can sometimes be bad. Um, you know, you want to avoid the heat of the day. You want to go in the morning, the evening, right at that crepuscular hour. That's peak activity. But you'll also start to notice little differences in each area that you go compared to back home. And you kind of have to just try new things and adjust it and keep trying new things and don't let the lack of snakes discourage you. I always tell people how to find snakes is you spend a lot of time not finding snakes. I don't go online and be like, guys, I just spent two days searching for snakes and I found nothing. No one wants to hear that. So, <laughs> you know, people often think that, oh my gosh, you're drowning in snakes all the time. While you'll have some really big successes, you're going to have a lot of failure on the way to the successes. Whether it doesn't matter whether you're in Central America, South America, Florida, Arizona, New Jersey, you know, you have to learn that area, what makes the snakes move or turtles or whatever you're looking for, especially when it comes to those little fossorial snakes. And I can go on about all the things that I think make snakes move. And then when I'm out there with my wife, I'll be like, oh, we should go at this time, that time. She goes, no, it's all luck. <laughs> I'm like, okay, thanks. Because <laughs> it's true. I'll say it's not true at the same time. We found a Sorophidon this last trip. It's primarily a diurnal species. You know, the uh, I keep wanting to call it a Gatherman's Pit Viper. I am not up to date on all of my taxonomy. I read books and I forget that there's the internet. And in a lot of the identification books, there's still Sorophidon godmanai, but I guess there's Sassi, which is Costa Rican um, mountain pit viper. And they're a diurnal species. We had just gone up to try and access a park to hike around for uh, Bothricus nigroviridis. I'm not positive of their common name. I want to call it black speckled palm viper. Uh, it's a species of, you know, that eyelash viper family that I have not seen. We got locked out gates. We decided not to jump the gates. And uh, we hunted some neighborhoods on the way out. And we're getting slightly lower elevation in the middle of a town at like 11 o'clock at night in a cold downpour, like buckets of water. It's in the mid 50s. Here's a on crossing the road, a little diurnal pit viper, just sitting there in the middle of the road, in the middle of the town, in the middle of a rain. So who knows? And she turned to you, she turned to you and said, see, I told you so. <laughs> yes. And I had to admit I was wrong, like I always do. <laughs> Yeah. Huh. Well, how about, um, I guess both from your, your adventures or how you select, but more in a general sense, if you're, let's just say you're thinking, Oh, this, you know, this year, let's go on a trip. Let's go on a big international trip looking for snakes. Um, how do you, how do you go about selecting a, a destination in a very broad sense? I'm talking about like a particular country or a particular region? What are some of the factors you take into account and, and just in a more general sense that you think other people should be, you know, thinking about as they select a location? So first thing that usually drives me is species, like prioritizing, like what species I want to see. Then, uh, 
it's going to be, you know, things to take into consideration. It's hard to know how safe every place is. A lot of places are safer than we realize because everybody watches the news and gets scared. But, you know, Columbia was seen as a scary place for a long time. My cousin just lived there for two years. It's a beautiful, amazing place. Uh, so species, you got to take safety and do accountability as much research on safety as you can. Uh, accessibility. So I will obsess over a species. I'll start looking at plane flights. Uh, I'll always look, I always try and get places that are direct flights. The luxury of living in South Florida is I live, I actually live on the West coast. A lot of people think we live over on the East coast. So we're about two hours from the Miami international airport, the Fort Lauderdale international airport. They have direct flights to pretty much everywhere in central and South America that you can want to go. We then, uh, look at flights. Uh, then I'll start looking at Airbnbs, eco lodges, and then I'll start hunting forums for where these animals might occur. Birding forums. I feel like I'm spilling a big secret. We might have to delete this one out of here. TripAdvisor. People take pictures of their stays, <laughs> and I found some really cool species <laughs> using TripAdvisor. I actually found a great spot in Costa Rica because these people said this place we stayed was absolutely horrible. They had to get a rattlesnake off our porch, and we saw a sea snake on the beach. One star, don't stay here. Boom, book it right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, there's a whole bunch of online folks. There's the big controversial iNaturalist. You can run through that. Books. Start referencing places get seen. Uh, birders find all kinds of great stuff. You also want to look into things like, hey, can I access this place at night? That's why when we travel, a lot of times it's good to go stay at either an Airbnb or an eco lodge that has their own tract of land. So if you don't feel comfortable going out into, say, the towns and talking to people, I've done that many times is just talk to farmers and say, hey, do you care if we walk around and look for snakes through here. A lot of times they're super friendly. One time in Costa Rica, they told me to be careful of the tigers. That was jaguars. Kind of confused me at first. It's like, what? Tigers? Uh, there was one killing their cattle. But, you know, if you book an eco lodge or even there's private Airbnbs where we went in Costa Rica and the cloud forest was one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. And I thought it was a lot prettier than the Costa Rican cloud forest. And that was actually a private person's Airbnb that owned like 200 acres in the cloud forest. And I emailed them ahead of time. Hey, I am particularly interested in primates and reptiles, venomous snakes. Do you care if I walk around the property at night? Uh, because other guests will be there saying, absolutely have fun. Uh, and another place I discovered, which I think they've closed down, was in Costa Rica. Again, another eco lodge. And these people often border other properties that you can also get access to. Uh, so he lived next to a farm and they had given us permission to go there. So we had in Panama, it seemed like endless hiking at night in a perfectly safe private lodge. It was pretty cool. Um, outside yeah. of there, it was a bit more difficult. Yeah. So you... So I want to break this down, go a little more detail into some of what you're just saying. So first of all, when you're choosing just a, a general destination, for you, it's driven by species. And and I'm assuming for you, that's a lot. It's uh, a lot of venomous snakes. It sounds like drive your destination. It sounds like for your wife, maybe the primate side of things is important. So you, you pick these destinations uh, where you can uh, go find a species. And then once, let's just say you decide on Costa Rica. 
And how do you then narrow it down? You talked about, you, you, you basically, it sounds like you do a lot of internet research. Um, you mentioned TripAdvisor and other forums. Uh, you know, is that primarily how you kind of narrow down location from there? Yes. Uh, I reference a lot of books, but books, to be honest, are quite outdated a lot of times as far as locations and where to go with, as we face here in the United States, continuous, you know, habitat destruction, whatnot. Um, one of the things that I follow are a lot of snake identification pages. Uh, people asking for help out to identify snakes, they often will put the snake in where they found it. And you can start to find spots that way. They're not going to say, you know, here's my backyard, my street address, walk me up to here. But as long as you can get a town, you can then look at the large tracts of lands, agricultural areas, roadways, and then you can build from there like you would here in the United States. Uh, Field Hurt Forum, that old thing that we used to all go on, the Field Hurt Forum, there's still people who had posted trips many years ago that are still floating around there. Birding pages. Birding pages are a really big one. Birders, as most of us field herpers know, uh, those diehard birders are always just finding what they call a snake. They take a picture of it. Hey, what's this? Someone identifies it. And that can lead you to a particular reserve, a particular town. And then from there, it's a lot of ground exploration. But I use as many internet resources as I can to get general information. Uh, getting exact like GPS pinpoints is just not really a thing unless some people will connect with other people. But uh, Taylor and I are kind of, we just go with each other. We don't really meet up with other people out there. Uh, there are those opportunities if you can get to know people. There are a lot of people in other places that I'll be happy to show you around. So we kind of like the excitement of exploring. You get on the ground, Hey, I think we can find this here. You know, I got, you know, somebody had one in their backyard in this town. Here's some agricultural areas that border the natural habitat. Let's go hunt that. Let's find a creek to walk over there. And that way, when we're finding stuff, it's kind of surprises. And it just brings me back to that excitement of a kid of finding a new species because it's just all new. It's not like, here you go. I led you go this trail, take this creek, hike up to this ledge, look on these rocks. There's your animal. I enjoy the hunting aspect, and it probably goes back to being a hunter uh, and a fisherman, is I enjoy the hunting aspect almost as much as I enjoy the finding aspect. Mm -hmm. So the effort put forth and then the prize at the end is what really makes it for me. Yeah, and so you guys, it sounds like you don't do it often, but would you recommend mm -hmm. uh, if you're going – somewhere internationally to try to reach out to somebody yeah. in that area and definitely. try to connect with them. Yeah, I would definitely do that. Cause then you have somebody on the ground that will share their local knowledge. And then if it's a different language, you also have somebody that speaks that language and then you'll have someone that understands the local culture and customs. Uh, I would be, if I was doing a first time international, I was a little worried about it. I would definitely meet up with people, but again, you know, goes without saying, make sure that person's reliable. <laughs> You're yep. meeting up with a <laughs> Great. decent person. So you, yeah, so you've selected a, a general location, say a country, and then through this kind of internet-based research, you've been able to kind of narrow it down to, say, very, you know, much smaller areas, say particular maybe watersheds or particular parts of a country. How much do you... And how much value do you put on really kind of researching the animal and, and 
what they do and how they do it and their, you know, say their specific habitat use. You mentioned activity patterns. How, how do you kind of get that information, which I would assume once you know you're in a place where you could potentially detect this animal, the, you know, you could increase your chances of seeing it by understanding the animal's biology. So how, how do you go about doing some of that? that that's when I get old school. I buy a lot of books and that's when I cross-reference. <clears throat> so I'm old school. I buy a lot of books. Uh, every time I go somewhere, I try and buy the literature of the species that I'm looking for in that area. And that's when I'll cross-reference, you know, description, behavior, habitat. And that's when I'll look for basic things like elevation. You know, and a lot of those old books will say they live between this many meters and that many meters. Granted, you know, snakes will verge outside of that. But if you can stay within that and then a lot of books will say fields on the edges, you know, forested fields or forest on the edge of fields. Or they'll say streams that run through hillsides found under rocks, primarily found during the day, you know, diurnal, nocturnal. And then a lot of it is I figure I can just get on the ground and use my base snake knowledge and different techniques and just start trying them out and see what I find. A lot of it, once I get on the ground with my base information and base knowledge is just going out there and having fun. And I try not to put too much pressure on finding my target. And I try and enjoy the place that I'm going to and the scenery as well. And my wife's helped me to do that because I'm a very obsessive person. Uh, I've always been obsessed with wildlife and I will get very fixated on a species and I will hunt all night till the sun comes up, try to target that species. And if I don't find it, I'll feel disappointed. So I've tried to change that part of me over the years to where I would love to see that species and a plethora of others, but I'm also here to enjoy the place and searching for wildlife in a new area. And that's like a mentality I try and keep while looking for my target species. But I have a very big list of target species usually. <laughs> yeah. How do you deal with, um, do you research kind of laws and regulations, which would obviously vary country by country? Um, you know, some countries it's probably perfectly legal to pick things up. Maybe some it's legal to take them. Maybe others it's not. I mean, how much, how, uh, how deep do you get into that? Or maybe, maybe what would you recommend that people do in terms of learning about laws and regulations and places they might travel to snake hunt? Yeah, that's pretty good. That's something that I entirely lack. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, What I would do is I would go online, probably talk to somebody and see if you can find the rules and regulations. A lot of times I found that to be a little difficult. And also I will find the laws to be different. They'll have the written laws, but when you're on the ground, a lot of times the people don't always enforce them the same. And here, I don't know if this is okay for the podcast, but I'll just tell you about it. We had the old man again, always getting me in trouble. We had caught a Loxosemus bicolor, you know, the burrowing pythons. And uh, we had caught it on a road and it was raining and we took it back to the hotel with us. And we we're on our way back to let it go. We stopped on the side of the road, which we didn't know was a national park. Opened up the bag, dumped out the snake. We were sitting on the side of the road, photographing the snake, thinking people in Costa Rica don't care about that stuff. Little did we know, we ran across the one ranger who did care. 
he did not recognize the snake. He actually thought that it was a snake from our country. And I had to spend a lot of time explaining to him that it was a native snake. We had caught it in a different area and we were just stopping to photograph it here on the side of the road. And then we we're going to let it go where we found it. He had picked that spot. I don't know why he picked that spot to photograph it. We argued about that for some time. Anyhow, he detained us for three hours and threatened to arrest us. And you can't touch any snakes in Costa Rica, which we learned that way. That I was completely unknown to this until that point in time. Uh, so as far as laws, it's I've found that to be one of the challenging things to find, because even when I ask people, none of it is very clear. Like, for instance, in Trinidad, they don't have any laws pertaining hunting or wildlife except for something about the sea turtles, but most everything is completely unprotected. We're in Costa Rica. It's all protected, but throughout most of it, when you're on the ground, you know, you'll, if you go to a park, you'll see people picking up wildlife, rangers picking up wildlife, but it just depends on the individual once you get on the ground in a lot of these areas. So that, that's a tricky one because like I said, I haven't been to, <laughs> I found that very difficult uh, to find the exact regulations. I mean, even here in the United States, it can be very hard to find the exact regulations pertaining to the wildlife that we pursue. Yeah. So, you know, I guess the take home there is that it can be difficult to find that information, but I would just recommend any of our listeners, if you're going to go international, one component should be looking at the laws and regulations so you don't get yourself in trouble in a faraway place. Um, how about uh, you talked a little bit about travel and lodging? I guess with the lodging, uh, you are, uh, you said Airbnb or eco lodges. And I thought that was a great tip that you gave there talking about, you know, one of the great things about that is you're, then you're on a place that has, uh, you know, has land you can, you can access. So, um, have you ever done any other forms of lodging? Say, do you ever like stay in hotels or you ever like done any camping or anything like that? Um, let me think about this. I've never done any camping in another country. To be honest, um, when I traveled with Taylor and she likes her luxuries, like a hot shower at the end of the day. And I'll say, I, I kind of like that too. Um, and making sure she stays fed is very, very important. So hotels, we've stayed... I don't think I've ever stayed at a hotel in the city while herping. Uh, we always stay at least outside. Usually it's pretty strictly Airbnbs and eco lodges. And I always lean towards an Airbnb. Uh, and a lot of them are, you know, will be an Airbnb on. We try and find places that are somewhat inclusive as far as food goes. Because uh, that can turn into a whole nother adventure itself, trying to find a grocery store, trying to find food. If you can't find a grocery store, finding a restaurant, uh, like for instance, in Aruba, I found that a very challenging place to find a grocery store with food. It was like little convenience stores. And I always try and stay out of the city for the most part. I really don't like being in cities. I've never lived in a city. It's the most horrible part of traveling is driving and landing and interacting in cities. So. Uh, that can be a big, you know, challenge in itself. Uh, but I'm pretty strictly Airbnbs and eco lodges. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would throw, this gets back to your, <clears throat> to your tip on, 
you know, staying in places that have access to land, you know, I would recommend, you know, from my travels, just things I've learned. I, there are a lot of national parks or other types of land uh, in various foreign countries that you're not actually allowed to go onto. So it's it's worthwhile also researching not just the regulations around animals, but the regulations around the land and where you can and and cannot go. Um, but back to the travel, I know it depends where you are, but typically, you know, you'd be going to a place that's relatively safe. So will you usually, how do you guys get around the country? Do you use public transportation? Are you renting a vehicle? Are there certain types of vehicles you might recommend? Yes. I always rent my own vehicle. And I always get full coverage, except for Trinidad. They wouldn't really give us full coverage for some reason, but they're really cool about us just bringing the vehicle back. But yeah, I always rent my own vehicle. And one important thing is I always either get all-wheel drive, usually try and get four-wheel drive. Uh, Panama, where we stayed, they required four-wheel drive. So we got a four-by-four. It was like a little Isuzu truck. It looked a whole lot like a um, Nissan Frontier. But I always run my own vehicle. I've never used the public transportation systems because we also do a lot of exploration outside of there. So we stay one place, we hunt the property, and then I like to take little trips outside of there. Like say I saw a really nice creek that we passed by, or I saw a road off the side that looked like it might be good for road cruising. I We're pretty spontaneous and uh, we don't like to be limited. And that's probably one of our biggest expenses is getting a vehicle with full coverage because in Costa Rica, I did have my friend and I know if anyone knows me, they've probably seen the photo of our car in the canal with the water flowing through both windows. And the cool <laughs> part about that, <laughs> the let me rephrase that. The only cool part about that entire experience aside from it being completely terrible, was that the full coverage in Costa Rica, they honored it and we did not pay a single dime. And they actually drove us a brand new rental car, the exact car out to where we were with our car in the water. And we put our stuff in it and they threw us the keys and said, have fun. So Wow. That insurance pays off. That's crazy. Yeah. and it's And to be honest with you, it's really not that much more money when you think about it. They give you a whole bunch of charges. You'll try and this is one thing that caught me off guard the first time. You book it $14 a day. Oh my God, five days. Look at this. I'm paying like heart. I'm laying less than a hundred bucks. This is amazing. They're going to hit you with a environmental tax. They're going to hit you with a bunch of taxes and it adds up to a couple to several hundred extra dollars. Realistically, you pay close to a hundred dollars a day per vehicle if you're getting a four by four. And that's a, a four by four vehicle with full coverage. And in a lot of Central American countries, they'll barter with you. It's not like here in the US where you walk over and they say, all right, this is what you pay. I can't even change the numbers for you at all. So what I did in Panama is I, I went to my my favorite uh, car rental company that I use in Costa Rica, it's Dollar. And uh, I started with them. I don't really like their price, but they always do this no matter where we go, it seems, because they did this in Panama. I said, okay, well, that's a little more than I want to pay. I'm going to go talk to the other people. And it's just like in the US where they have all their little stands next to each other. So I just walk to the next one and I get all their list of like, all right, I'm looking for a four by four. 
um, what are your prices for a four by four with full coverage for this many days? And I'm like, uh, okay, I'm going to go to the next one. And at some point, one of those people will chase you down and say, okay, listen, I have got a deal for you. And that's what happened with my dollar people. Again, they came over, chased us down. And for seven days, we paid six ninety for seven days total for a four by four truck that really was very useful. Full coverage, which means, you know, you crash into anything, you damage it, you're good to go. And it's, I mean, you're going to be paying way more than that in the U.S. for a full-size vehicle, full coverage. But I guess our car insurance can help out here, but you can't use your car insurance there. They try and do this thing where you have to put down $2,000. You just suck it up, take it as part of the expense. And uh, yeah. it's how about, um, go, how about la- language-related issues? Um, I don't know if you speak Spanish or if uh, your wife does, but um, do you find... Uh, say in Latin America, where it sounds like you've done a lot of your travel, do you find it easy to get around if you're not a Spanish speaker? Yes and no. Like I speak a little bit of Spanish and I can speak enough to get me by, get my point across and, you know, do the basic things, order food, talk to people. Uh, I'm not fluent in Spanish, but there, there's this misconception you'll hear amongst a lot of people. Yeah, go to this country. Lots of people there speak English. Not really. Uh, same, you know, I said the same thing about Panama. Oh yeah, everybody speaks English. Not really. Like when they say speak English, it'll be a few words here and there. They sort of understand you. It's pretty important to learn a, at least in the Central American countries, because that's mostly, I haven't really been to other parts of the world. Um, but I know in Europe, a lot of those countries, because I deal with a lot of European tourists do speak. A fair number of people speak English, but down there, it is important to learn the basics, like be able to order food, ask for directions, maybe figure out the small kinks in your travel. And there's a lot of really good, you know, technology is amazing. There's a lot of really good apps on your phone where you can start to learn, you know, these other languages. And it's important for driving, reading signs and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think I've traveled to many parts of the world, and I think uh, I've found Europe. And I'm speaking generally. Obviously, there's a lot of countries in each of these places, but I found Europe kind of the easiest place to navigate on English. And then I would say Latin America, kind of a second. And then I found um, parts of Africa and Asia to be the most difficult if you only speak English. So I mean, but that's generalizing across a lot of countries and all of those places. Right. right. <clears throat> so, but okay. Interesting. Uh, how about, you know, I guess I would just throw this out. I don't think we need to discuss it, but if you are going to other countries, you know, our audience should be aware, obviously you need a passport, but um, you know, you, you need to look into kind of the visa process for each country. Some are very, simple and you you get your visa at the border and that you know but there are other countries in different places in the world where you need to be applying for these well ahead of time um so so i would recommend everybody kind of look look into that so you mentioned kind of as your selection process for where you might go thinking about kind of how safe or how dangerous a place might be and you know mentioned that we probably as Americans in general err on the side of thinking places are more dangerous uh, than they really are. A couple questions here. So one, how do you go about researching how 
if a place is truly uh, dangerous. And then I'm also curious if you have any tips for how people can be safe when they're uh, safer in that regard, you know, dealing with people primarily when they're out snake hunting. Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a quick break and tell you guys that reptiles are declining around the world. As an example, turtles are the most threatened group of animals on the planet, with over 60% of all species classified as endangered. The Orian Society works every day to ensure that there's a future for these amazing animals. If you care about reptiles, amphibians, and their habitats, become a member of the Orian Society today by visiting www.orian.org. Uh, so the safety thing, I, I try and do online research, you know, uh, since COVID they've had that marker that Taylor does a lot of that part. She's a lot better with safety than I am. Uh, guys were a little more reckless in those aspects. Like I'm, so I will try and talk to people that have been there occasionally. Um, I'll read online for theft and what to look for. Uh, one of the good things to search for safety is if you can go to the expat forums, because a lot of these countries people expat to, and you'll be able to read, you know, if there's a lot of crime going on, if there's, as a general rule of thumb, a lot of Central America is pretty safe in general. So it's not something that I really, really worry about. In Central America, some of the biggest things are petty theft. Because a lot in areas, a lot of people see Americans as, you know, they think every American's rich. And for instance, everything can be stolen that you have. I had some shoes and I walked to the beach one day, just my shoes. And I set my shoes down on the water and walked into the water, swam around, and not kidding, maybe four minutes later, turned around, my shoes were gone. Uh, so it seems to be petty theft is the biggest issue. Um, yeah, I'm not really good with safety. <laughs> I'm trying yeah, to no, think I, of like, what was that? I, I, I would agree on the petty theft thing. You know, like I certainly, if I'm traveling through much of Latin America, a lot of times I wear like a muddy belt or like something inside my clothing, in particular when I'm in the cities. When I'm outside of the cities, I don't worry too, too much in general. Yeah. But, um, you know, or, you know, especially if you're going through a busy market or something in a city, you know, I'd always have my backpack on the front and kind of be holding it. And, you know, I wouldn't just have a wallet, phone hanging in my pocket. Those types oh, of things yeah. could easily yeah. disappear. So you, you just need to be conscious of those things. Um, well, let's, uh, I guess that's a lot of good info. And I think it'll help people as they think about uh, the potential for for making some of these international trips, looking for snakes. So I would like to uh, I'd like to talk about your latest trip to Panama, and uh, so was this your first trip to Panama? It was my third trip to Panama. Oh, so it's a place you're you're getting to know well. Uh, it, it was my first herping exclusive trip, but I've made uh, two other trips there birding. Gotcha. So what was it? What was the target species that, that brought you there? Was there one thing in particular, one group in particular? Um, 
one of the main things we wanted to go there is Taylor was actually, um, we wanted to see primates snake wise a little bit, but she actually has been thinking about, I don't know if this will be for the podcast. Was, she's thinking about been wanting to buy property in another country. So we have a mm. place to go and stay at and like wow. kind of make our own little place in the future. So that was the number one trip. Our number one purpose was to look at cloud forest properties and things like that. But as far as animals goes, uh, probably one of our main targets was going to be the Bothricus. Uh, we really want to see some lateralis. Uh, I, I did want to see Seropiodon, but I couldn't really find information on them. I wanted to see Negroviridus. I'm always down to see more eyelash vipers. I wanted to poke around for Superciliarius because there's almost no information on Superciliarius in Panama. And uh, we really wanted to go see tamarams as well and then do some sightseeing, some birding and just spend time in the cloud force, the two of us, because this was our first chance to get out since COVID. So we've actually been, we haven't done a single international trip because of all, we have been worried about getting quarantined in another country because of the exotic animals at home. So it's just a risk we haven't been able to weigh. We were just ready to get out and uh, maybe check a few species off. I'm always looking for more of my cruis species. Uh, I really mm -hmm. love coral snakes, uh, you know, many banded corals, uh, the bicolors. There's several cool species of coral snake that make their way uh, into Panama. Um, but Panama was a bit more challenging than I would say Costa Rica. Uh, I found the densities of herbs to be much lower. Uh, there's a lot more, very similar to Florida, private land. Uh, so huge tracts of Panama are cattle farms. And it's cattle farms that butt all the way up to the preserved habitat. But the preserved habitat is all the way on the other side from where the road is so the road butts up to the cattle farm and then miles away is the natural habitat so you have to hop a barbed wire fence and trek miles which that's not really feasible uh we did quite a bit exploring we actually hit the east coast the pacific coast the northern side and the canal and the species were very very low however the birds were insane uh, the primates were really good we thought tamarins were going to be easy like they had been in the past but this time that we went we didn't see any tamarins uh you know the area we went to uh, one of the people i was talking to just a local person i'll just chat with people when i'm out and on the ground another good way to find about snakes just like you can here in the united states uh they suggested maybe the feral cats had to do with the loss of tamarins in that area which i was super disappointed in because primates are a big thing for me as well uh it was kind of odd in the sense of when we got to the canal area, their common herps are the same herps you could find here in Florida, but they're not native. Uh, basilisk lizards, iguanas, oh, wow. caimans, <laughs> boa constrictors, uh, American crocodiles. We spent a couple nights catching pretty much everything we would catch uh, here in Florida, added with, you know, brown vine snakes, uh, DOR coral snakes, uh, but Boas and vine snakes are all in bird eater snakes, uh, we found over there as well. But lots and lots of birds. Uh, you know, we got to see the capuchins, the spider monkeys, the black howlers, and then tons and tons of birds to where she stopped stopping and looking at birds with me. And she said, put that camera away. <laughs> Time to go find a snake or a primate. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, one thing 
you know, kind of back to the how to on travel. But one thing I just picked up on from your Panama trip that interested me, you mentioned, you know, basically kind of this landlocked public land that was kind of surrounded by private that, you know, miles that you couldn't access. So when you're in country, do you use any, any type of like, E or pre, do you use any like e-scouting software? Like for hunting, we use like Onyx, there's Hunt Smart, all these things you have on your phone that show like property boundaries and shows the maps and the satellite imagery. Um, you know, obviously there's Google uh, Earth and Google Maps. Uh, what do you use kind of like to remotely both scout and then navigate in country map wise? Google Earth, I'm kind of old school. Uh, Google Earth is the one thing in a lot of those places you can't even see uh, street street view. So a lot of times it's me trying to go back and relay a spot to a topography map and then come back and figure out if that's a place to go. And then, you know, a lot of it's guesswork once you get on the ground. You can't see if gates are open or closed. You can't always find information of what time the parks are open online. It's it's a lot of guesswork. And again, that's kind of part of the excitement. But again, that's part of something we run into a lot is figuring places out. We do end up, you know, having a day or so that will be wasted because we we don't take herp trips, uh, guided herp trips where it's all laid out with each day. We have the areas where we have a base hunt that we go out from there. And uh, yeah, Google Earth has been the most reliable thing for me to cross-reference. And then I try and find online things, but that's all I really use is Google Earth. Hmm. I'm not sure if those resources are available in other countries. Have you ever tried it? No, I haven't. That's it's a good that's question. It's a good thought, so, though. Yeah. So The cool uh, thing is a lot of the, the private land, as long as you can talk to somebody, uh, they are usually very kind people and their private land, at least in my experience in Central America is viewed much differently than private land in the United States. You know, like here, at least where I live, all the gates have got do not trespass or tired of hiding the bodies type of thing. <laughs> you know, you're <laughs> met with firearms in Costa Rica. You're not, you know, it's yeah. not really a worry. Um, however, in Trinidad, one night we were exploring I'm trying to remember the name of the swamp. I keep wanting to call it the Crony Swamp. And we had an interesting experience. I had just picked a spot on Google Earth. We had tried to contact the preserve before we went out there. We couldn't find any numbers, anything. But we said, hey, let's just drive out there when we get there. So we drove out there and there was nothing. It was like a dirt road that led to a dead building. And so I said, all right, so here's some areas that I was trying to hike if we could get in there. So we drove around, we found some agriculture that butted up to an area that potentially had anacondas. That was my hope. I was dreaming big. And we got into an agricultural area and we got out and we just started walking down a trail on the edge of what appeared to be, I believe it was sugarcane. I caught a huge rat snake. Um, I forget which exact species it was. Uh, they call it machete there, a very large rat snake, probably about a six foot rat snake, just curled up in the tree on the edge of the agriculture. Uh, we saw some spectacled caiman and we're walking through this field and there's what I would call here in the middle of the agriculture, a tree island. Uh, you know, there's a little bit of trees in the middle of the sugarcane field. And we kind of see this little light dancing through as someone's coming out and he's working his way out and we're met on the road by this little man with his dog holding a lantern, I think it was a, a, an electric lantern, 
in a very large machete. (laughs) (laughs) And he was very intoxicated. And I don't, I don't know what language he was speaking. It was like, they're, they've got a, a very hard, there's like English words in it. It kind of reminds me of Creole and I couldn't really understand what he was saying. And he spoke a little bit of English and he was very intoxicated. He'd actually urinated down his leg. His pants were completely soaked from it. He was swaying around with his machete, asking us what we were doing. Uh, We were looking for snakes. And he said, I'm going to go with you. Let's get in your car and I'll show you a spot. And I was like, no way. Uh, So we had to part ways with him, which was pretty hard. And how I kept him out of the car was by saying, we have friends on the way. And we need to go meet up with them and they're going to, they're waiting for us. They're going to be out here. So he goes, okay. And we got him to get away from the car. We got in, we drove out from there. We drove out from there. We were stopped by police that then said, you're tourists. You need to leave and go back to this other town where we had came from. So sometimes you wander into scenarios, uh, trying to access areas that aren't the best scenarios, but I think that's just part of it. You know, like good, there's good lesson too. using your head and, and being sharp and getting yourself out of situations like that. So, well, great. Well, we're going to, let's, let's start kind of uh, wrapping this episode up. And, and I know you've heard at least some episodes uh, of the podcast. And so you probably know, I like to finish each episode by having the guests tell us their best snake story. So I'll let you take it away. That's a tough one. It's a hard one because there's been a lot of really big, like at least to me in my world of snake hunting, there's been a lot of really, you know what, here, you might appreciate it. This is probably one of my more memorable ones. And I think that like, as far as like adrenaline goes, I'll say there's, there's two that come to my mind. I think my first Eastern Diamondback is probably one of my best it's snake stories, at least for me, you know, it's not the rarest snake on earth, but it, it was a very substantial moment in my life. Uh, I was with my grandparents and my brother and I were birding with them. And no matter where we go, I will rent a car, but I was too young to rent a car. So I was getting a bike and my brother, he will go with me and go snake hunting. It's my only brother that will go snake hunting with me. And so we got this little yellow tandem bike and I knew there was diamondbacks there. And uh, we didn't really have them in the area of central Florida that I grew up in. So I was like, Gabe, we're going to go find us a Diamondback. And we biked every day. Uh, And I talked to someone there that was doing reptile research. I wish I could remember their name. And they said, yeah, we see the Diamondbacks by the coast. And I went, let's go. Every day I biked me and my brother out to the coast. And we were walking the sand dunes. And out of the corner of my eye, in between two tufts of wire grass was like, kind of sounds silly. I thought it was a cow pie. And then my brain said, wait, you're not in central Florida. That's not a cow pie. And I looked and there was probably in my mind, it was massive. Uh, it was probably a four and a half trying to be a five foot, a large Eastern Diamondback coiled up. And my brain pretty much exploded, you know, with the excitement. Uh, whenever I'm field herping and I, I find something really in my eyes grand, I have a minor freak out, you know, yeah. And uh, it's uncontrollable happiness. And I just couldn't believe it. My brain just like started exploding. I couldn't believe we found one and we'd been carrying around this giant. Now looking back, totally ridiculous stick. 
And I took the stick and tried to pull it out and it's rattling. And I remember just hearing it sing that rattle. I was just, I need more of these in my life. And, you know, <laughs> I took a couple strikes at it. So my brother's like, whoa, man. And it was just, it was just a very, very special moment. I think between that and seeing the first Diamondback I ever saw in captivity, eat a rat just had me very, very hooked on that. Yeah, there, there's certainly an amazing animal, and um, I love to hear Diamondback stories. So great. Well, if people want to uh, follow you uh, on your adventures, where what's the best place for them to to kind of find you? Maybe on different social media platforms. I or post on YouTube. to YouTube. Uh, I try and post herping videos, Florida, and I post a lot of our rattlesnake removals and relocations uh, to our YouTube channel. It's Toby, T-O-B-I-E, and then Troop, T-R-O-O-P. It's because our monkey's in it a lot. He goes snake hunting with us. Uh, we don't have real children. We've got the capuchin. You know, he sleeps <laughs> in our bed every night. He's basically a human. He's much above me in the totem pole uh, here at the house. Um, but he goes with us. So it's Toby's Troop. Uh, and then I post on Instagram a little bit. And then Facebook, my page is public you can always follow it and i post stuff there yeah well um yeah it was great talking to you today and i think this information will really help some people as they think about uh traveling so again thanks for thanks for being on the podcast yeah it was uh, great being here it's good chatting with you as well great and i want to thank the audience and tell everybody to remember snakes are animals too and it's a privilege to see one in the wild